0: Receipts live show at Tudum.com slash W-H-T-R. That's Tudum, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers.
1: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal.
0: Am I fearful of repercussions from them? Yeah.
2: People would talk about the Murdoch's making people disappear.
0: I don't think the story's even close to being over. And yes, I'm a little nervous about sitting here and doing this now.
1: Today, we're talking to directors Julia Willoughby-Nason and Jenner First. Alec Murdoch was a third-generation lawyer in a powerful Southern Carolina family. But their reputation began to crack when his son Paul was behind the wheel during a fatal boating accident. Survivors said Murdoch tried to get others to take the blame and used his considerable sway on investigators. The controversy rekindled interest in other deaths the Murdochs were connected to, such as the unsolved murder of a high school classmate and the fatal fall of their housekeeper. But the community was shocked when Murdoch's wife and son were murdered on their property. And while under suspicion, Alec Murdoch was wounded from a gunshot and what authorities say was a setup. Murdoch Murders is a very timely look inside today's most sensational true crime story. I wanna know who killed Paul and Maggie and who killed Steven.
3: I still think that Mr. Alec is hiding things and If you ever meet him, I'm
1: sure you'd get that feeling, too. I know to listeners, we recorded this interview before the conclusion of the Alec Murdoch murder trial. And I'm joined by directors Julia Willoughby-Nason and Jenner First. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: So a lot of times these documentaries are about something in the immediate past, but this is a case that continues to play out in very much the present. Julia, were you afraid you wouldn't be able to keep up with the speed of developments in the Murdoch case? No, not at all,
3: because the speed doesn't really have anything to do with the craft and and kind of curation of this art form. I mean, and it's great to have that adrenaline rush in real time on the field as filmmakers. I mean, even till today, we're, you know, watching the trial as this show comes out. So it continues to be a, a speedy breaking type of case. But no, we really were digging way back into a lot of archival stuff that was piggybacking off of the new stuff that was coming in the media. So it wasn't a concern. Really about the new stuff coming out at us, but it was so Jenner, exciting.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's obviously exciting and very topical. And um, Jenner, the story has gotten a lot of coverage in podcasts and on basic cable true crime shows. And I'm wondering how you think about making your series stand apart when maybe people think they know. About the case already, like how do you approach it, and how do you think about that when you're making a series like this?
2: You know, it's interesting you ask. We found ourselves in this position a couple times before. Um, in the documentary we made about the fire festival, and the documentary about Lula Roe. And I think you know, for us, it's really about the storytelling. It's about how we approach um, character development, how we look at history, how we do our own independent investigations. And, you know, someone we both know very well likes to talk about what's going to make the 400-year bus. You know, in 400 years, what are you going to care about? And you're not going to care about a 24-hour news cycle story. You're going to care about the more timeless archetypal aspects of a narrative. And I think that we approach storytelling that way. And so regardless of how the story is breaking, if you were going to chase that for 18 months or 12 months, it'd be nearly impossible to tell a story like this because we're not the news. You know, this is, this is a totally different, as Julia said, it's a totally different art form. So I think for us, the competition always makes for a bigger spectacle. But, you know, we've been making films long enough that you know we trust our ability to find the story. And for us, it's all about access and our characters. And that's what we really lean into.
1: So speaking of that, I was really blown away by your sourcing in the series. Why do you think all of Mallory Beach's friends and their families agreed to talk with you? Our showrunner, Michael Gasparro,
3: really took the lead on lead, reaching out to the characters and gaining access and building trust with them. Um, they obviously took a look at our work and understood where we were coming from and how we were making films and... We weren't trying to make a spectacle or get any sort of drama and we understood a steep down that this was a huge personal tragedy and that is something we have made films and series about for over a decade and I think that these characters who were on the boat and who had lost a friend and lost a daughter and loved one could see through um, all the media reach out to them and trust us as filmmakers to listen to them deeply and document their experience.
1: I do want to ask, Julia, you about Alec Murdoch. And we should mention, I think, for listeners who maybe have seen his name in headlines, it is pronounced Alec Murdoch and not Alex Murdoch, even though that's how it's spelled. What kind of figure personally, you know, what kind of figure did he cut? We've
3: listened to um, audio recordings and, you know, videos of him and talked to intimate sources of him. And just by the sound of his voice and the way he um, describes a story, he's very sweet and very innocent. And even though he's over six feet and was quite, you know, larger than he is now, you know, because I think he's lost some weight. He was, you know, kind of like this gentle giant type. The life of the party, he was, seemed like he, of the brothers in his family, kind of ran the show and was like very unassuming.
1: So there are many aspects to the story, but instead of telling it chronologically, you begin with the 2019 boating accident involving Paul. Why is that your jumping off point for this story?
2: I think what people need to understand is that had it not been for this tragic night that no one in the world would know this story. The the Murdoch family would have continued to do what they do, and had it not been for the love and the compassion and the sense of heartbreak in this community when Mallory Beach went missing uh, and during the search for for, for her, and when this community witnessed the Murdoch family do what they do and try to cover up the investigation and, you know, try to divert responsibility and try to take away the focus from their son, Paul Murdoch, who was clearly driving the boat and who was grossly intoxicated, it became a breaking point. And that wasn't enough because even though it was a breaking point and everybody had a bad taste in their mouth and everybody felt like enough is enough and we can't let this family do this anymore, it took an attorney like Mark Tinsley, who understood how the Murdoch family worked. He had been in the same courtrooms with them. He had been on, you know, and in some instances, the same side of the bench as them, uh, had architected certain settlements with them. And he understood the tricks they play and he understood what kind of, you know, games they were going to try to architect to get this, you know, to disappear. And there were other crimes from the past that were being exposed, like what happened to Gloria Satterfield and what happened to Stephen Smith. And you have this incredible pressure on this family now. And that pressure would have never existed. And so on the night that Paul and Maggie get killed, we have to ask ourselves, how did this all come about? And so many people in this community and what is the backbone of our series, that if it wasn't for that tragic night and the loss of this amazing young woman and the outrage in the community, and if it wasn't for the families banding together and working with Mark Tinsley to get answers, it's possible that everything would have just gone the way it used to go. And Paul and Maggie potentially would have never been murdered because this spectacle and the cracking open of this family led to this house of cards coming apart. And there's so many motives connected to that that would lead to, at least at the very least, Paul being killed. It all starts with that boat crash. It wasn't even the murder of Stephen Smith or or the tragic death of Gloria Satterfield where there was a thousand questions what happened. It all started with Mallory Beach.
1: So Julia, seeing all these young adults talk about how intertwined their lives were from when they were little kids, you know, was really interesting because they really paint this very complicated picture of Paul. Um, They obviously all say that he was piloting the boat. That seems very clear. Can you talk a little bit about that picture they painted of him, that really complex picture of Paul that they talked about?
3: Yeah, I think that you see an evolution in terms of their read on their friend and them all growing up together. There's, you know, this sweetness and nostalgic of them. And the small community. I mean, a lot of their parents are friends and all have known each other since very, very young. So I think they saw Paul progressively change. And really through it seemed like alcoholism became unmanageable. And of destructive force and was not getting potentially the help that he needed.
2: The biggest thing I looked at is like his eyes. It
0: was like he was looking through you, you know? But all it was, was he was trying his best to understand what you're saying, you know? Because he's so drunk that he he can't
2: really function. People would say, oh, he he looks scary, you know what I'm saying? He looks like he's about to kill me. No, he's just trying to understand you.
3: And they kind of referred to his parents in that way as if he's mimicking his parents. And he had a lot of pressure on him to potentially be a lawyer and didn't really seem, as far as we could tell, maybe interested in that. So while, you know, we interview Morgan, who was intimately involved with him as his girlfriend for four years, it's a hard situation because you can tell that she really loved him and really dealt with an abuse cycle that took a while for her to physically remove herself from. I started crying and that's when uh, Paul got in my face and he just started screaming. And
0: uh, that's when Paul slapped me. Then, um
3: You know, you could tell by the way that he did it, that it wasn't the first time. It even seems like today, really hard for her to speak about because of how layered and complicated that cycle is.
1: Hmm. Do you think, uh, Julia, that his family enabled him? Because that's how it seemed to me. And it seemed like his friends were describing that uh, with the use of alcohol and with this fact that, like, every time he would do something really bad, nothing would happen.
3: I could see people thinking that he's enabled and it makes perfect sense because when he would get arrested for drunk driving or possession of any kind, he would get a slap on the wrist and he would have massive parties at Moselle with his friends there, lots of alcohol, drinking alcohol with his family you know as what people describe to us. So yes, you could see that as enabling. You know, I as a filmmaker I never want to just say like definitively. That's one side to the story that we know of. We interviewed his friend Anthony Cook. He didn't he was also more sympathetic I think to kind of a nuance of Paul and didn't really indict his parents as much as maybe other people did in terms of the enabling quality of things like that. Mm. We just kind of took it in and put it on the screen and see how people feel about it.
1: So you have 911 audio and body cam footage of the response to the boating accident. And I'm curious, what did you get from this footage that you can't get from, you know, reading the accident reports, Jenner?
2: Well, this is one of the most remarkable things is that you can actually see the cover up start to unfold that night. And many of these police officers and the sheriff's department, four different agencies responded. You had military police from Paris Island, you had the sheriff, you had the police department, you had EMTs, and you see a confusion. Well, you fucking smiling like you're fucking funny. My fucking girlfriend, go, he's rock
3: fucking hell. He's just agitated. It took them 15 to 20 minutes to get Paul to actually get in the ambulance. And he's not really responding to me or any of us.
2: You see from six different angles and body cams and dashboard cams, a lot of confusion. And you also see a pretty clear pathway to a suspect. But yet you don't see that suspect in front of a camera at any time. But somehow, suspiciously, Paul Murdoch is never brought in front of a car He's never appears in any of the footage, even though he's being identified as a suspect. And it just turns out that the agency that's given jurisdiction is, you know, an agency that investigates mostly boat offenses and boat crimes. And that agency had huge ties to the Murdoch family. And so yeah. after an hour of confusion, this agency takes the lead and they're pretty much doing anything they can to not prove that Paul Murdoch was driving, including investigating Connor Cook, who all of the people on the boat, other than Paul Murdoch, who was blackout drunk at the time, not even given a breathalyzer on the scene. And you can see this all play out in the dash cam and in the body cam footage. He's not even given a basic sobriety test. In this one incident and in the aftermath with four different law enforcement agencies, you can see the way that this family and this young man, who's not even of age to drink and who is clearly drunk, is given preferential treatment uh, from from Jump Street. And I think that is so impactful and so chilling to watch.
1: So, Julia and then Alex Murda arrives at the hospital where all the kids are being treated for their injuries. And he has a plan for them and their parents, too. Right. To bring them in on this cover up and this story.
3: Yeah, he becomes the cover up when he comes to the hospital and wanting to get into Morgan's hospital room when she's getting her skin on her finger sewn back together. He's knocking on the window and asking and saying to the nurse, I need to get in there because I represent her. So not only is he <laughs> pretending he is a lawyer so and he's not, he's it seems like he's done this before.
1: So the kids' parents, Julie, I mean, they they really seemed to believe that Murdoch's power was extraordinary. They were really careful dealing with him because, you know, one of them says at one point that they thought he could literally make people disappear. Do you think this is an overstatement of his influence and his power?
3: Well, from what we know, his, uh, the men in his family were prosecutors for over a you know, hundred year period and were notorious for putting people on death row and a lot of people, life in prison, unfairly. So they had such a strong hold on this community.
2: Yeah, but I think I think it's really important not to paint Alec Murdoch as this, you know, mastermind criminal kingpin. You have to remember that this is like a Shakespearean tale. This is, he is the fourth, fourth yep. generation and, and Alec is the fifth. And just like mm. in Shakespeare, at that point in the family line, you have dysfunction, you have buffoonery, you have a, a sloppiness driven by privilege, and he is not his grandfather, he's not even his father. But you got to remember that in that hospital that night was Randolph Murdoch, his father, who had served as a solicitor for decades, who had served on the law firm for decades, who carried on the legacy of his father, Buster, and, the, and his grandfather, Randolph the I., I mean, we're talking about southern lore and this gothic tale that started 100 years ago. And by the time you get to Alec Murdoch and his son Paul, you know, the family is not as sharp as it was. They've been bred in complete privilege and been able to run a system down there. And although the media and this trial makes it seem like Alec was the overlord of this family— He was the middle child of a fourth generation of power that was already disintegrating and that was completely disintegrating in his family line with his children. Right. And that Paul represented essentially the end of a dynasty with his complete and total uh, sickness and criminal behavior.
1: Well, the legal system treated Paul like most rich defendants. In this case, they sent him home and that got a lot of press attention. Um, And then, of course, later, the attention on the Murdochs renewed attention in a cold case involving the death of a high schooler named Stephen Smith. Julia, can you remind us what investigators knew at the time of Stephen Smith's death?
3: Um, Well, it's hard to tell what investigators knew at the time of Stephen Smith's death because it seems like they didn't really investigate, huh? And there is a there's a story there to unpack.
0: Yeah, they said it was like a
1: hit and run. I haven't really got who, like one clear story. Um, I can tell you this. He didn't get hit by no car. Well, recently I heard that
0: these two, maybe three young men were in a vehicle. Guess they were attempting to. Mess around with him or something like that. There
3: is information. Yes, they went to the scene of the crime. Yes, there's data. There's an autopsy report, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There's no suspects. And the case was dropped very soon after it was, you know, started.
2: The incident that night with Stephen Smith is, again, a microcosm about the way the system works down there and the way the Murdoch family can operate the system. Okay. And so. You had jurisdiction issues. You had different law enforcement reporting on the crime. You had confusion that night on whether it was a hit and run when it didn't appear to be a hit and run in any way whatsoever. You have all sorts of stories appearing in the weeks after that Buster Murdoch could potentially have been dating or having some kind of sexual relationship with Stephen Smith and that Stephen Smith was going to tell people. You had motive. You had rumors going around the community, and meanwhile, the investigation is fumbling uh, with jurisdiction issues, with all sorts of different things around the autopsy that are very, very questionable. They were doing the investigation in a very defunct way, the same way that the highway patrol, who was assigned jurisdiction over Stephen Smith, was conducting interviews and, and no offense to these officers with absolutely no knowledge of how to investigate a homicide. And you can listen to these tapes. They're leading the suspect. They're, bu- they're bumbling around the microphone. And this went on for six, eight months while Stephen Smith's mother was completely and totally bereft. And while there were no answers and that crime disappeared, completely mm-hmm. disappeared. And again, it took the accident And it took the death of Mallory Beach for everyone to look at it again and say, wait a second, we've seen this before. This feels like deja vu.
1: So I want to move to the night of the Murdoch murders, of course, the murders he's on trial for right now. And Julia, can you tell us about what we actually know about that night? You know, Alex claimed alibi, you know, the sort of the the timeline. I mean, is there anything that we actually know for sure?
3: Okay, so there's no eyewitness and there's no murder weapon. Hmm. So what we have to look at now is Alex's word and his phone location and his text message, like his phone history. Text message, phone calls, and location
1: data. And same goes with Maggie and Paul. So... that is all of the evidence of all of the timeline stuff of all the facts that can be presented and you know one of the things that's strange to me is, is the choice of weapons you know uh, there's this shotgun and then there's this rifle it's chambered in what's called blackout 300 which is a very specific type of bullet and there were shell casings left at the scene the gun that Maggie was killed with was this specific type of rifle and guess what the Murdochs own that type of gun and it has not been turned over to investigators for ruling out as the murder weapon. Julia, is there is there a prevailing theory about the use of two weapons in the case? There's so many theories,
3: and it's so confusing that there are two weapons. It's almost like the people involved in doing this crime made it made it more confusing on purpose. The we, we know is the Murdochs did own both those types of weapons, but the weapons we cannot find. It seems to me that potentially someone wanted to kill Maggie and Paul was Paul's murder was by mistake. I think that's what's coming through to me a little bit more as I listen to the trial. But the way they were both killed in close range with two different types of weapons in the same location at the same time period is very bizarre. It's almost at first we thought one of them killed each other and then Mm. killed himself. Right.
1: Well, I don't want to lose sight of a really important figure in the case, Maggie Murdoch. Jenner, can you paint a picture of her for us?
2: You know, Maggie and Alec had been together a long time. They were Seen as, you know, really influential and established people in the community. Um, Many people love Maggie a lot. Um, Of course, like any community, there were people uh, who, you know, had gotten on the wrong side of her. Um, People like Anthony Cook described Maggie as an incredible mother who was so good to him throughout his childhood friendship with Paul, always took care of him. Uh, There was a feeling of warmth uh, when you were in the Murdoch home. Um, but again, it was so subjective because there were people who were on the opposite side of the Murdochs who feared Maggie, um, felt that she was spiteful. Uh, there was a lot of rumors that she was looking into getting a divorce. So you have this sort of huge ecosystem of, uh, different motives and theories on where Maggie was at before this crime. And it all feeds into the lore.
1: Is there any plausible reason that Alec Murdoch and Eddie Smith would be together on that rural road before Alec was shot? Can you talk about that incident a little bit, Jenner?
2: Other than a botched clandestine meeting slash proposition gone wrong, there's zero reason. Curtis Edward Smith
1: subsequently said, I felt like I was being set up for something. He called me out there to help him with something, I thought, and then... Kind of, you know, staged the struggle with the gun. But he said he absolutely did not conspire with Alec to kill him.
2: It was a complete and total spectacle. Again, I think born out of Alec Murdoch's, you know, crazy head who believed he could get away with anything. And it was a distraction. And it spun in the media for weeks afterwards, and it's it's absolutely fantastical. It makes zero sense. And the second Eddie Smith gets on camera, you ask yourself, what the hell is going on here? This is insane.
1: I mean, money is obviously a big threat in this story. You know, of course, there's Gloria Satterfield's death and the insurance scheme that Alec Murdoch did after that, where he did not pay any of the money to the family. And he was expelled from his family's law practice for, among other things, embezzling millions of dollars. His lawyer says he was addicted to painkillers, but he stole far more money, it seems, and needed to cover that habit. And later you show his son Buster throwing around money in the Las Vegas casino, What was going on with money at the time with Alec Murdoch's allegedly murdering his family?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, Alec seemed like he was under a huge amount of pressure because he was broke. And it's been, you know, revealed in the trial that uh, Mark Tinsley was suing him for $30 million. And he was sweating big time. He was trying to find as much money as he could. I think every property had been leveraged. That he owned. And, you know, we've also seen that he had so much money, you know, leveraged and stolen from Palmetto State Bank, as well as his clients and his partners at his law firm. I mean, it seems like the way he he was doing this for so long, setting up fake, you know, bank accounts with fake names on it to private annuities company that were just his personal account, having the same name, Forge Consulting and Forge Alec Murdoch, this was kind of like the bottleneck effect of the perfect storm for him.
1: Hmm. It's interesting to me, Jenner, because these are crimes we're talking about that he committed, right? He was expelled from the law firm for embezzlement. And these are those are crimes. And we see his family talking about him still in this very supportive way, you know, during the trial uh, and footage that you show. But as a viewer, I also can't help but draw the line between the fact that Alec Murdoch seems very comfortable committing crimes, seemingly not having consequences for those crimes.
2: Yeah. You know, if it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it's usually a duck. And I think that the idea that this, quote unquote, embezzlement um, situation at PMPED uh, was, you know, oh my God, look at what Alec is doing. I mean, we, we, we had no idea. Let's get him out of here. This is a guy who's been doing this stuff and there's other people associated with him that have been doing this stuff. And there's been things like this happening in this community just like this for decades and decades, for a half a century or more. And to think that this embezzlement charge or even, um, you know, the way he was defrauding people originated with Alec and he didn't learn it somewhere and perfected somewhere and have people witness him do it somewhere and look the other way and or get their palms greased is ludicrous. And I would just say on top of that, that despite him sweating about his own personal finances, the family probably needed to put the firewall up because these are attorneys. They know how to launder money and they probably have money hidden in a million different places. And our investigation showed that they did and that Alec did. And that there were properties and all sorts of real estate transactions that were very murky. And so it's, you know, Mark Tinsley, it was the tip of the iceberg. And he knew that there was money hiding places. And he continues to know where it's hiding. And so do the attorneys for Gloria Satterfield. Everybody, you know, all you have to do is look under the hood. And you're going to see things that predated this incident by decades.
1: So you end the series on a jailhouse phone call.
2: Hey,
0: hey, what you doing? Nothing. What's up? Hey, Buzz, I'm gonna ask you: Did Netflix put something out about all this?
1: Julia, what was your reaction when you heard Alec talk about your documentary?
3: My reaction, I, I mean, I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, it's it's ironic that you know the, it's so ubiquitous. This like documentary zeitgeist, where criminals in jail can be talking about the work that you're making on the outside. Um, but I, I, to me, I thought it was it was funny, you know, like ironic.
2: I think we always kind of are entertained by the sort of snake eating its own tail, you know, the sort of self reflexive quality of documentary, you know, showing the the process of a documentary tipping our hat to the viewer that we are merely making a documentary and that it is just that and that even, you know, the person, you know, who's the subject of it is referring to it as such. And I think that we've gotten to that point, as Julia said, that, you know, with Netflix and with the incredible proliferation of documentaries over the last 10 years and we're longer, you know, the sort of golden era that a Netflix documentary is something of its of its own. It's, it's got its own zeitgeist. And, and we found ourselves really amused by that and wanted to lean into it. And it was the perfect ending.
1: Well, The Murdoch Murder is a Southern Scandal. It's a great series, whether you're following the Murdoch trial or not. I really recommend that everyone watch it if you haven't. Julia and Jenner, thank you so much for talking to me about how you made it and all the stories inside of it. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Good to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. really appreciate you having us on.
1: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Julia Willoughby-Nason and Jenner First. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.